We're studying tonight Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. As a matter of fact, we're completing our study. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. The purpose of Romans 5, 12 to 21, which is one of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible. The purpose is to show the universalism of the gospel. Will you take your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 3? You remember that this section begins at Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. Now in Romans chapter 3, 21 and 22, uh, Paul states under the Holy Spirit what he's going to tell us in the next two chapters. You know, that's the mark of a good author. He tells you where he's going. Romans chapter 3, 21 and 22. Romans chapter 3, verse, 20, uh, verse 21, the Bible says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is manifested in witness by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ, unto all, and of all of them that believe, for there is no difference. Now look at those two verses. But now the righteousness of God, now the righteousness of God, now, he's going to explain that phrase, the righteousness of God, in verses 23 to 31. He's going to explain that one, the righteousness of God, 23 to 31. Second, verse 21, apart from the law is witnessed by the law and the prophets. He's going to explain that statement in Romans chapter 4. Third. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith. He's going to explain that statement. How secure is righteousness through faith alone? He's going to explain that in Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Now, he's got one more thing to explain. It's not in my faith. See, it's in the Bible. So look in your Bible. What's the other thing he's got to explain at the end? Uh, verse 22. The righteousness which is by faith upon Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. Unto all. Now he's going to explain that statement in Romans 5, 12 to 21. You see what he does? He does what any good author does. If you go to university and write your dissertation or thesis, what you're going to have to do is tell people where you're going. A good author always tells you where he's going at the very beginning. A good servant, I happen to believe, tells you where he's going at the beginning of the sermon. See? Uh, now, that's a throwback to preaching about 100 years ago. I wonder if we could close that door and lock it so people come in the back door. That'll be fine. Now, uh, <clears throat> what Paul is going to do now is, is he's going to take up that last phrase, Romans chapter 3, 22, unto all and upon all them that believe. And he's going to expand that, Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21. And what Paul states in Romans 5, 12 to 21 is the universalism of the gospel. God wants to show that as the one act of Adam had universal consequences, so the one act of Christ had universal consequences. How about the death of Jesus? Is it only for Jewish people? Is it only for white people? 
Is it only for religious people? How wide is the gospel? That's the question Paul is answering in Romans 5, 12 to 21. What Paul is showing, apodosis, prodosis, or prodosis, apodosis, prodosis, as one act of one man, Adam, had universal consequences, death, to all those that are united to Adam. Apodosis. So, the one act of the last Adam, Jesus Christ, had universal consequences, life and justification, to all those that are united to Christ. That's the thesis of these ten verses as the one act of one man had universal consequences to all those united to him. So the one act of the last Adam had universal consequences to all those that are united to him. That's very simple. That's the thesis of Paul, Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21. And right in the middle, the end of verse 14, he gives us the key to it, Romans chapter 5, verse 14, where he says that Adam is the type or figure, the type of him who is to come. So the purpose of this is to declare the doctrine of universal justification of sinners on the ground of the one righteous act of the Lord Jesus by reference to the universal condemnation of all men on the ground of the one act of Adam. Now, if you charted it, I already put this chart up. I'm going to show it just for a minute. Here's the way you'd chart it. Like this. You've got two men, the first Adam and the last Adam. You've got two men, first Adam and the last Adam. First Adam, last Adam. The first Adam did one thing, an act of disobedience. He ate the fruit of the tree. That one act of disobedience had a consequence. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely, what? Die. And that act of disobedience with the consequence of death affected all men in Adam. How many men come from Adam? All men. So they all die. Now, just as the one act of one man, one act of disobedience of one man, had universal consequences. So the one act of the last Adam, the act of obedience at the cross, has universal results or consequences to all those who are in Christ. That's the thesis, Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21. Now, now he does, uh, he does four things. First of all, he, he, he begins a comparison, Romans chapter 5, 12, 13, and 14. We took that up last week. He begins the comparison. Let me summarize it in about five minutes. You want it further, then you get the tape. Let's summarize it in five minutes. Romans 5, 12, 13, and 14. Now, don't come up and ask me to summarize it afterwards. Get the tape. Romans chapter 5, 12 to 14. Romans 5, 12 to 14. He says, uh, I, I summarize it by saying five things. 
Number one, first, there was a definite historic Adam. Adam really lived. Number two, there was a definite historic fall. Adam disobeyed God and fell into sin. Three, there was a definite consequence to that one sin. What was that consequence? Death. Death. Four, there was a universal involvement in that consequence. Death passed through all men. Death fell upon all men. Five, there was a valid reason for this universal permeation of death to all men, and that valid reason is to the last statement of verse 12, for that all sin. Now let's read chapter 5, verse 12. Don't look at me, read the Bible. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Wherefore is by one man, there was a historic Adam, wherefore is by one man, sin entered into the world. There was a definite fall. And so death entered into this world by sin. That is, death is a penal consequence, not natural consequence of sin. Did I take that up last time? Did I? Death is a penal consequence of sin, not natural. Adam would not have died had he not sinned. And he explains that by saying that little infants of five days old, one week old, die. And they die because they sinned. Where did they sin? They sinned in Adam. That's the point that Paul makes in Romans 5, 12 to 14. So death, uh, death entered this world by sin. Verse 12 now. So death passed through all men. Death permeated all men, for all, and strike out the word have, for all sin. Now, all sin. Now, when you look here, more theological literature has been written on that one statement than any other statement in all the Bible. More theological literature has been written on that one statement, for all sin than on any other statement in the Bible. Now, not more servants have preached on it, but more theological literature. In what sense did all men sin? Well, I took that up last Monday night. And the four basic views going all the way back to Pelagius in the 5th century describing that, and I told you what my view was. I believe in the organic unity of the human race that when Adam sinned, that was the sin of the race, not simply Adam. Just as Levi, just as Levi paid tithe to Melchizedek, though he was not yet even alive, he was in the loins of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Levi. Levi was not yet alive. But although he was not yet alive, he was in the loins of Abraham, his great-grandfather. And the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 7 that Levi, not yet alive, 
paid tithes to Melchizedek, but paid tithes being in the loins of Abraham. Race, unity. So the sin of Adam was not only the sin of the one man Adam, it was the sin of the race. When Adam sinned, you sinned. I sinned. See, well, you say, I wasn't conscious of it. Well, as a matter of fact, you weren't conscious of the first sin that you ever sinned. I asked last week, anybody remember the first sin that he or she ever sinned? Nobody could tell us. You don't remember what it was. You don't remember what it was, see? So the first sin, that sin of Adam, was a sin in which all the human race was involved. Now, you say that's hard to understand. Well, I'll be frank to you, that's almost impossible to understand, but so is the doctrine of the Trinity. Just because the doctrine is hard to understand, we don't, we don't reject it. Now, the other view is, and it's the view of the covenant theologians, the other view is that Adam served as our representative. He was the uh, DH. You know what that means? He was the designated hitter for the human race. See? He was the human race DH. And he went to bat. And when he struck out, because he was our designated hitter, God imputed his sin to me. That's the view of the covenant theologian. And they say there's an analogy. Just as, as God imputes Jesus' righteousness to me, even though I did nothing, so God imputes Adam's sin to me, even though I did nothing. The answer to that is that you can impute goodness to a person, but you can't impute sin to a person. Oh, they, so they use the illustration, well, just as the children of Hitler's soldiers suffered from what Hitler's soldiers did, that next generation had to suffer from it. So Adam's descendants suffer from Adam's guilt. That's imputed to them. But what is imputed to the children of Hitler's soldiers is not the guilt of Hitler's soldiers, but the suffering, not the guilt. You don't call those children to court. For man is a murderer. He has three children. He's a thief and a murderer. And he's pulled into court and put into prison for 30 years. And his children are deprived of the father. And the children run wild and get into trouble. They suffer from their father's sin. But no court of law is going to pull those three children in and charge them with the guilt of their father's sin. What is imputed to me is not simply the suffering that falls from Adam's sin, but the guilt. Because the Bible says that sin passed through all of us because all sin. How did we sin? We sinned in Adam. The sin of Adam was the sin of the race. And that's what we mean by original sin. Now, a hundred years ago, men preached about original sin. Today, you don't even hear about it. They preached about it. And original sin refers, includes two things. The original guilt of that Adamic sin and the pollution, the corruption that comes down 
from parent to child, given to me by my parents, and given to them by their parents all the way back to Adam. Those two involve original sin. When I was saved, when I was saved, I thought, well, God has saved me from my sin. My trouble is the sin. I cheated. I lied. I told dirty stories. I had a vile vocabulary. A-C-T-S, acts of sin. That was it. But then as I studied the Bible, and as I saw my own human nature, I saw that my problem was not A-C-T-S, acts, but N-A-T-U-R-E, nature. I had a sinful nature. Because I had a sinful nature, I did sinful acts. I don't lie and then become a liar. I was born a liar. And then I lied. Well, then I studied a little further. And a lot of people don't go any further. And I studied a little further, and I found out that in addition to the acts of sin, and to the nature which I inherited from my parents, a sinful nature, that before God, I'm charged with a third thing. And that is that I stand guilty before God because of that sin of Adam in the garden. Why? Because I was there. The sin of Adam was the sin of the race. And the proof, the proof, that Paul uses is found in verses 13 and 14. Now, don't look there. The proof that Paul uses is simply this. Now, listen. Death is a penal consequence of sin. Death is not a natural consequence. By that, we, I mean that when God created Adam and Eve, they were created with a death-doomed body. Had Adam not sinned, he would not have died. Had Eve not sinned, she would not have died. Death is the penal consequence of sin. Not natural. Today it's both penal and natural. But it's first penal and then secondly it's natural. But, Paul goes on to say, people sin as they sin not after the similitude, the likeness of Adam's sin. That is, little infants die. Infants of a day old die. Infants of five days old die. But sin is a, uh, death is a penal consequence of sin. Death is a reason they die is because they die from a penal consequence of sin. Why did they sin? They didn't sin when they were one day old. They didn't sin when they were five days old. Well, how come they die? Death is the penal consequence of sin. Death is the penal, not natural, penal consequence of sin. It's a penalty. What did he say? In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. The wages of sin is, it's the penal consequence. But little infants die. That means they sin. Where, said Paul, did they sin? Did they sin when they were two days old? No. No. Did they sin when they were weak old? No. Where did they sin? 
they sinned in Adam. And that's what that last statement in Romans 5.12 means. And you ought to knock out the word have, and you ought to circle that word because that's, one respect, the most profound statement in all the Bible. All sin. All sin. Why did we all sin? All sin to Adam. Look over at Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Here's the verse we often quote, Romans 3, 23. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. We read Romans 3, 23. What do we read? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, when you look up here, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But <clears throat> when Paul writes for all have sinned, he uses the aorist tense. When he speaks about coming short of the glory of God, he uses the present tense. For all not have sinned, for all sinned. What is he talking about, Romans 3.23? He's talking about that original sin of Adam. For all sin in Adam. And now, now today, all are coming short of the glory of God. That is, all of us today are putting our vote to what Adam did. We're affirming what Adam did. All sin, not all have sin, but all sin. Where? In Adam. Today, by our sinful act, we're all coming short of the glory of God. Now, going back to Romans chapter 5, the comparison has begun there, and he makes those five statements, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. Now, secondly, however, secondly, <clears throat> let's read 5, 12, 13, and 14. Wherefore, is by one man sin entered in the world, death by sin, so death passed through, permeated, invaded all men for all sin. Once of the law of sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. That is, uh, if there were no, supposing a man drove out on Union Avenue 80 miles an hour. Supposing there was no law against driving 80 miles an hour. Would that be an evil Yes, yes, would be wrong, yes, but you couldn't punish it. Why? Because there's no law against it. And that's the point that Paul is making here. Because of the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not chargeable, it's not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death, the penal consequence of sin, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them, little infants, that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Yet they died. If they died, that means they what? If they died, they what? Sin. Why? Because sin is the penal consequence, death is the penal consequence of sin. In the day that thou eatest thereof, you know, I don't think you, some of you believe this, see. But that's what the Bible teaches. Death, well, you say, I thought death was due to a heart attack. Natural, yes, it is. Today, today. Natural, today. But before natural, it is a penal consequence. 
penalty. Had Adam not sinned, he would not have died. God said, in the day that thou eatest, disobeying, the day that you sin, disobeying, the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die, and that's primarily physical death. When he ate, the seeds of physical death were sowed into his body, and he died. The soul that sinneth, it shall, the wages of sin is death. Death is the penal consequence of sin. Little infants die, or do they? Do little infants die? Huh? Or are they just gone to sleep? No, they die. Death is the penal consequence of sin. Little infants die. Why do little infants die? Because they sin. Where did they sin? In the sin of Adam. We all sin. The sin of Adam was a raised sin. When Adam sinned, he sinned not simply as himself. He sinned as the race. Just as all your, listen, all your genes, all your genes, all your chromosomes, all your makeup was essentially in Adam and came out of Adam. God's not creating anymore. God's not creating anymore. He's working now by providence. And in this case, by conception. Just as genetically, potentially, all was there in Adam, material body, so immaterially, so was the soul there, given to me by propagation. That in theology is called traditionism. So when Adam sinned, the race sinned. So when Adam died, the seeds of death were sowed into the race. And the reason men die is because they sin, not, not telling a lie or cheating. They do that. But the reason they die is because they sinned in Adam. As the old McGuffey readers used to say, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And the human race fell, sinned and fell, in Adam. And he illustrates that in verses 13 and 14. Now, however, there's some contrast. The type is not perfect. So he draws some contrast in verses 15 and 17. There's some contrast, and he draws them. There are three of them. Three differences between Adam's, Adam's work and Christ's work. Let me say them very quickly, three differences. The first one is a meritorious difference. I call it a meritorious difference. Meritorious, verse 15. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. Or as the New American Standard Bible says it better, but the free gift is not like the transgression. There are some differences. See, there are some likenesses, but there are also differences. And there are three differences. First one's in verse 15. I call it a meritorious difference. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if the offense of one, uh, uh, if through the offense of one man, many die. Why did men die? 
because of the offense of the one man. See? If through the offense of the one man many die, much more the grace of God, the gift by grace, which is by one man Jesus Christ, has abounded unto many. If a man, a creature, can do so much against the race by his fall, how much more can Almighty God do for the race by his grace in Christ Jesus? A meritorious difference. Now you say, what do you mean by that? I mean by that, that the condemnation Adam received was merited. What I got from Adam was merited. What I get from Jesus Christ is unmerited. Meritorious difference. Secondly, there's a numerical difference. Verse 16. Not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment, the judgment was by how many sins did Adam sin in order for the human race to die? How many? Just one. Just one. Numerical difference. How many sins does the act of Jesus cover, however? Verse 16. But the free gift is of how many? Many offenses. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. There's a numerical difference. Condemnation results from one sin. Justification delivers us from all sin. So I call that a numerical difference. Then quickly, third, what I call a certainty difference or a difference in certainty. Look at verse 17. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more, how much more, they who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one man, Jesus Christ. Much more. If union with Adam in his sin was certain to bring destruction in his death, well, union with Christ in his righteousness is yet much more certain to bring salvation. That's the contrast. Now, having quickly stated those three contrasts, now look up here. See, what he does is, verse 12, 13, and 14, he starts the comparison. For as by one man sin entered the world. Chapter 5, verse 12, is to start the comparison. For as by one man sin entered the world. But he doesn't complete it. If he completed it, he'd said, even so. But there's no even so in verse 12. Whereas by one man, apodices, prodices, by one man sin entered the world. He doesn't finish the comparison. So, before finishing the comparison, he states the contrast, 15, 16, 17. Now, in verses 18 and 19, he gets back to the comparison once again. Let's read verses 18 and 19. Therefore, see, he's coming back to verse 12. Therefore, as by the offense of one man, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of what the righteous act of one man, the free gift came unto all men under justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were constituted sinners. So by the obedience 
of one man Jesus shall many be constituted righteous so he recapitulates what he stated in verse 12 now let me suggest something here let me just put this real simply in five very simple statements five very simple statements first there are two ACTFs what's that word there are two acts two acts what are they called in verse 18 the two acts the offense the offense that's the one act the offense or it's called better trespass you go down to Mississippi and you drive along you see some pretty good hunting in there and you get out take the gun and what's that sign you see no yeah well that's this word here trespass for as by the trespass of one that's the act of Adam trespass now at the end of verse 18 you got even so by the what yet yeah, righteousness that ought to be by the righteous act of one righteous act what was the righteous act of that one what he did on the cross look here for it's by the trespass two acts two acts two acts the trespass of one back yonder in the garden when he disobeyed God now secondly we got the word righteousness in King James it ought to be by the righteous act what was that righteous act that was the act of the Lord Jesus in obedience to the father's will dying for us sinners that's the righteous act to act secondly to motive to motive what was the motive verse 19 behind Adam's trespass verse 19 what was it disobedience but what was the motive behind the one act of righteousness of Jesus in verse 19 obedience what is that obedience that's his obedience to the father's will at the cross now I wonder if you look up here there's some people some theologians who believe in what they call the active and passive obedience of Christ I don't the active obedience of Christ they tell us is all the life of Jesus that's the passive obedience of Christ the active obedience of Christ is when he Philippians chapter 2 he became obedient unto death that's his active obedience both his passive his life and his active obedience are both imputed to me I don't believe that doesn't make that much difference but I don't believe that I believe that the obedience of Jesus that is imputed unto me is that active act of obedience Philippians chapter 2 he humbled himself he humbled himself that's the incarnation and became obedient unto death that's Calvary and there are 33 years in between he humbled himself took upon him the form of servant humbled himself that's the incarnation and he became obedient unto death even the death of the cross now look here my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and righteousness when he shall come with trumpet sound oh then I shall in him be found dressed in his 
Jesus, thy blood and my beauty are my glory. What is that righteousness which God imputes to me, which he credits to me in the hour of my conversion? Now, I hope you listen to this because this goes to the heart of our faith. What is that righteousness which God credits to me in the hour of my conversion? Dr. Kennedy down at Coyle Grables likes to ask the question. He got it from Donald Gray Barnhill. If you should die and stand at the gate of heaven, God should say to you, what right do you have to be in my heaven? What would you say? See? Well, that's a good question. What right? No right. Except I'm dressed in the... What is that righteousness? Where did it come from? That righteousness is that righteousness which Jesus Christ earned by his obedience unto death. By that act of obedience unto death. By that act of obedience unto death, he did two things. He paid for my sin. He bore the guilt of my sin. But in obedience to the Father, he also earned for me a righteousness. And when I trust the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, then God engages in arithmetic. He subtracts my sin, and he credits to me the righteousness of Christ. What is that righteousness? It's that act of obedience of Jesus in submitting himself to the Father's will and dying at the cross and bearing my sin. And that is what God imputes to me. And that's the motive behind it. Third, what are the two immediate effects? What are the two immediate effects? Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience many were constituted sinners. Now will you look up here again please. King James says we're made and the King James says, we're made righteousness. And that is a very poor translation. The word, the word here, the Greek word, means to be put into the category of. So, by the act of Adam in the garden, we are all put into the category, the state of sinners. And by the act of Jesus Christ at the cross, and when I receive the Lord Jesus, God puts in the category of righteous, of justified people. And that's the consequence, the immediate consequence. And then he tells me the ultimate effect, and he tells me the two extensions. Now, let's conclude by looking at verses 20 and 21. Jew is going to raise a question. Jew is going to raise a question. Uh, if they're just two men, Adam, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, Jesus, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, well, said the Jews, why did God bring Moses along the sea? Why did God give Moses? Why did God give the law? What's the purpose of the law? Any Orthodox Jew would have asked Paul that, did ask Paul that, and would ask us that today. Paul You've talked about two men, Adam, Adam in the garden, and Jesus at the cross. But for us, the greatest man in Old Testament history is Moses. The greatest event is the giving of the law. 
and you haven't said anything about the law. What is the purpose, Paul? What is the purpose and function of the law? What does the law fit into all of this? Now, Paul answers that in verses 20 and 21. Let's read it. Moreover, the law entered, and the word entered now means it's a little, it's a peculiar word. It's pi, para, para, ice, aelpen. I don't like to be technical here, but I am. Para, ice, aelpen. Ice, aelpen means to enter. If somebody came in that door, you'd use the word aelpen, enter. If somebody grabbed, if a husband and wife locked arms and came in through that door, and they'd have to be kind of thin, see. <laughs> A husband and wife came in through that door and they came in together. You'd use the word par ice aelpen, entered alongside. Paul says the law entered along, along, alongside what? Alongside that one sin of Adam. Just as sin, what entered in verse 12? Look at verse 12. What entered in this world in verse 12? What entered? Sin. That's Aelfen. What entered in verse 20? Par ice Aelfen. What entered in verse 20? The law entered alongside. Now, what's the function? Well, two things. Two things. Verse 20. Moreover, the law came in alongside that sin that the offense might abound. The offense, the offense, the, not any sin, but that great sin of Adam in the garden might abound, might be manifested in all its heinousness. That's why God sent the law. You said, I thought God sent the law to save us. No, he sent the law to kill us. The purpose of the law was to slay us, 2 Corinthians 3, not to save us. Not to save us, to slay us. Paul says the purpose of the law was not to solicit sin, but to elicit sin. Let me use an illustration. Let us say two men now. Now here's kind of an ideal illustration. Here are two men driving along Interstate 40. Let us say one man is a man, a man that's uh, is a good man, a law-abiding citizen. Let's say that this first man has in his heart a desire to abide by the law and to obey the law. He has that in his heart. He wants to do the right thing. So he's driving along, and he comes into a city, and it says uh, school zone or speed limit, 30 miles an hour, dangerous, pedestrian, and this man's heart is right, He's been going 55. He slows down to 30 miles an hour, see. Goes through the city, goes out the other side. Here's the second man. This second man has a, has a rebellious heart. He's got a rebellious heart. Let's say he's a boy about 19. He's had a tyrannical father, and the father's beat him, and he couldn't get even with his dad because his dad beat him. So he takes out his insubordination and his disobedience against society in general, which a lot of kids are doing today. 
So he's driving through this place, and he comes to the sign, says, slow down to 30 miles an hour. What does he do? What does he do? He pushes on the pedal and goes up to 60. See? What did that law do? It didn't solicit him to sin like a prostitute solicits us. He didn't solicit the sin, but that, that law elicited. It brought it up out of his death. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 7. Paul said, I thought I kept the law perfectly until one day the law said, don't covet. Don't covet. And I found out that I was coveting. And I thought I'm pretty good. And one day the law of God says, don't do this. And I have a heart of rebellion. You know what happens? I do it. And the purpose of the law was to bring that that inner rebellion to bring out the terribleness of that first sin of Adam in the garden that permeated all of us. See, all of us are going to die someday. You know that? Unless Jesus comes. In fact, a couple of you look like you're right on the edge of it now. See? <laughs> now, don't look around. Don't look around the other person. <clears throat> We're all going to die. <laughs> Someday we're all going to die. You know that? You know why you're going to die? Because you sinned in Adam. Genesis 3, see? You're going to die. That was a terrible sin. Oh, I don't think it was bad. Well, that's why the law was given. The law was given to make, and the, and the article is used, the offense, not any offense, but the offense the offense of Adam in the garden, to bring that out into the open. Remember Dr. Ironside telling the story one time? This goes back about 80 years. <clears throat> he said he had, a, he had a, an Indian from the Navajo Reservation. He was a good man, a Christian. And uh, so he said, you know, we, we went to California, Dr. Ironside tells in one of his books, and we visited several homes. They were beautiful homes. And he said, my friend conducted himself impeccably. His manners were impeccable. He said, we got down to San Bernardino, down to the bus station. And I was there about two years ago, and I don't blame him what he did here. <laughs> You've seen that San Bernardino bus station. They lost my luggage for about three days. But anyway, he said he, uh, he, he, he went in with this man, this Indian, and this goes back about 67 years, they had a big sign. Right there in the wall. Don't spit on the floor. Dr. Ironside said, you know, the first thing the guy did was he just bumped up there and spat right on the floor. Dr. Ironside said to him, why did you do that? He said, well, he said, I didn't mean to do it. But when that sign said, don't do it, there was something that just prodded me on the inside. And I went and did it, see. That's why God, one reason God gave the law. I didn't think sin was bad. Then the law says, don't. And my heart of rebellion rises against that. And I do it, see. I do it. The law says, don't. And the heart of rebellion rises, and I do it. Why was the law coming alongside that sin? To show how terribly devastating that one sin of Adam in the garden was. 
because that one sin of Adam in the garden started everything devastatingly well. The hunger and deprivation in India, the atomic and hydrogen bombs to destroy mankind, man's inhumanity against man, man against man, brother against brother, race against race. Where does this all go? Back to that one sin of Adam. You say, that's terrible that he did that. No, that's terrible that I did that. I did that. Because I was involved in that sin. See, I was there. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Then he says in verse 21, the second thing he did it, that is sin has reigned unto death, even so grace might reign through righteousness. That is, once a man has learned that he's a sinner, God gives him the law to lead him to Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. And we'll see that when we come to Romans chapter 7. Now let me conclude. Let me close. Romans chapter 5, 11 to 5, 21, one of the most difficult sections in all of the Bible. And he does four things here. If you will look this way, and then we'll wrap it up and close it. First, he begins the comparison. His whole purpose is to show us, his whole purpose is to underscore universalism, universalism, that just as the one act of the first man had universal consequences to all those that are united to him, so, the second great act of the last Adam, that act at the cross, has universal consequences to all those that are united to Christ. Not to everybody, but to all those that are united to Christ. How many people are united to Adam? Everyone. How many are united to Christ? Those who have exercised faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are united unto him. Now, that's his thesis. First, he begins the comparison, Romans 5, 12, 13, and 14. Then he stops and draws three contrasts, 15, 16, 17. Then he goes back and picks up the Protestants as A.S. He picks it up, restates it, and completes it in Romans 5, 18, and 19. As one man... One man disobeyed God, brought death and condemnation. So another man obeyed God and brought righteousness and life. Why the law? Well, said Paul, the law came in. God gave the law not to save man, but to kill man. The law is not a life preserver. The law is the guillotine. You, you got a mirror in your home? You got a mirror? Well, that's what the law is. It's a mirror. lady came to a preacher one time and said to her, Pastor, I want to tell you that I have a very bad sin, a very bad sin, and I'm having a terrible time with it. And the pastor said, what is it? She said, it's the sin of pride. I have a terrible time with the sin of pride. She said, I get up in the morning and I prepare and I go to the bathroom and I look in the mirror and I stand there 15 or 20 minutes and I walk away and she said, the pride rises up in my heart 
and I am terribly, terribly devastated by pride. The preacher said, Madam, he said, if you don't mind me saying so, that's not pride, that's poor eyesight. <laughs> so anyway, Paul says here <laughs> that the law, you see, is like a mirror. How do you use a mirror to get clean? You don't use a mirror to get clean. You go to the mirror to look at the dirt. So you go to the mirror to look at the dirt in the face. Then you get that basin of water, put your hands in it, get a wash rag, you do it that way, wash the dirt off your face. The mirror shows the dirt, the water cleanses it. The law is the mirror. It shows the dirt. It demonstrates our sinfulness. Second Corinthians chapter 3, it kills me, it slays me. Then, after the law has done its work, then I go to Calvary, and the blood of Jesus does his work. But as old Dr. John Henry Jowett, the great Presbyterian preacher in New York City, said, said so beautifully, the needle of the law must pierce the heart before the thread of the gospel can bind it up. I never forgot that. The needle of the law must pierce the heart before the thread of the gospel can bind it up. Now let me close by making a couple of statements here. We summarized it. Two men, two acts, two results. Two men, Adam, the first Adam and the last Adam. Two acts, the act of disobedience, the act of obedience. Two results, death, and life. Look secondly, at, and may I just suggest this, you'll have to study out. Therefore, R-E-I-G-N-S in this passage. What is that? R-E-I-G-N. What is that word? Reign. Not R-A-I-N. See, you know, years ago I was correcting the paper. I heard a fellow preach, tell me about a man preached down in the south, and he kept talking about Noah. Noah, he was using as a joke, Noah, not Noah, Noah, Noah. And I said, well, <laughs> nobody ever do that. Till one day I was grading a paper, and sure enough, girl replied, who is that that was on the ark? And she said, N-O-R-A, Noah was on the ark, see. Now, there are four R-E-I-G-N's here. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, you have the reign of sin. Verse 14, you have the reign of death. Verse 21, you have the reign of grace. And verse 17, you have the reign of a believer. Now, the final thing I want to point out, however, and perhaps the most important, the key to both of these passages, Romans 5, 1 to 12, Romans 5, 1 to 12, and Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21. The key to it is this word, much more. Much more. And may I suggest to you that there are four of them, and we'll look at these four, then we'll be through. Much more. Much more. Now, before we, we look at them, let me say what kind of statement that much more is. Sometimes we use the word much more quantitatively. Quantitatively. If a cup will hold ten berries, then a basket will hold much more. 
That's quantitative. Quantitative. But sometimes we use it in a logical way. If a father will buy his son a new car, much more will he buy him a license. That's the much more of certainty. That's a logical much more. Now, the much mores that we have here are not quantitative. The cup and the bucket. They're the much mores of certainty. If God loved us when we were enemies and died for us, much more will he keep us now that we're friends. How much more certain he is. Now, there are four of them here. Want to look at them? Well, you don't. You do. Well, all right, well, we'll do it then. Take about two minutes to look at them, and you can study them out. First one is much more of deliverance of God's wrath. Romans 5, 9. The much more of deliverance from God's wrath. Romans 5, 9. Some of you are Sunday school people. You can use this sometimes. Romans 5, 9. The much more of deliverance from God's wrath. Let's read Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Verse 8, But God commends his love toward us, that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, much more than, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. If God justified us by the blood of Jesus when we were his enemies, how much more will he save us from his wrath in the day of judgment? That's the much more of the deliverance from God's wrath, and it's guaranteed to us by the blood of Jesus Christ. The much more of deliverance. Number two, chapter 5, verse 10. Number two, Romans chapter 5, verse 10. This is the much more of security. The first one is the much more of deliverance. The second one is the much more of security. Let's read Romans chapter 5, verse 9, <clears throat> verse 10. Well, verse 9. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath. That's the much more of deliverance. Now, verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. How much more certain is it? Now that we are friends, now being reconciled, we shall be kept saved by his what? His intercessory life in heaven. The much more security. Here's a great passage on the eternal security of believers. Look, look. If God loved us, and died for us while we were enemies and hated him. How much more, now that we're his friends, will he keep us saved by his life in heaven? Which was more costly? His death at the cross or his life in the presence of his father today? If you get the mother to give you the baby, you going to have any trouble getting the cradle from her? No. God loved us when we were sinners and died for us. Much more will he keep us saved.
by his life in heaven. Number three, the much more of recovery. Chapter 5, verse 15. Romans chapter 5, verse 15. The much more of what I call recovery. Chapter 5, verse 15. The much more of recovery. Let's read it. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if to the offense of one, Adam, many are dead, how much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, has abounded to me. What he means is this. If one man, a creature, a finite, weak creature, can cause us, and we and him, to transgress and fall into sin, how much more can the almighty God recover us from that fall and restore us to himself? The much more of recovery. And then the final one, the final much more, is found in Romans chapter 5, verse 17. And that's what I call the much more of dominion. The much more of dominion. The much more of dominion. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. For if by one man's offense, for if by one man's offense, that is Adam's, 